Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. All right, so we are um, still in Genesis. We are still with uh, our patriarch Yaakov, Jacob. Um, last week's Parsha, Vayishlach, I'm sorry, uh, Vayetze, um, it, in one Parsha we get 20 years of Jacob's life. So he sets out for Haran because his brother Esau is ready to kill him, right? And he runs to his mother's family in Haran, and he's supposed to find a wife there and all that stuff, and he's only supposed to stay there till his brother's rage subsides, but that doesn't, that's not how things go. So he uh, falls in love with Rachel and wants to marry Rachel and uh, works for her seven years, but there, I recently read an article that said probably it's not years, it's probably seven growing cycles which makes way more sense, you know, three and a half years. Um, so that, you know, each harvest, you know, each growing cycle, there's two in a year, um, that he worked seven cycles for her. Um, and then it was given, of course, Leah instead, her sister, um, and then has to work another set, the same number, um, if you want to call it seven years, seven growing cycles for Rachel. Um, his beloved. Um, and they have, uh, each of them has a handmaiden. Each of them, like Sarah, gives their handmaid to Yaakov when they are no longer bearing children. So between Rachel, Leah, Bilha, and Zilpah, um, he winds up with 12 sons and a daughter, Dina. So all that happens, and he works for his father-in-law, and he asks his father-in-law for the speckled and spotted sheep and striped ones, and that's what he gets, and he has this way of having them um, reproduce at a higher rate, and therefore he becomes very successful. So he gets lots of animals. Then it's 20 years later, and it's time to think about going home. And so that's where we pick up this morning, is Yaakov is going back to home, and, um, and he hears... That for that Asav, his brother, is coming with 400 men. So he doesn't know what that means, but clearly Asav got word from the scouts and spies in the area that Yaakov's coming because Yaakov's got a lot of women and kids and animals and right. So it's a huge caravan, and Asav gets word that Yaakov's coming. And Esau's coming to meet him with 400 men. So Yaakov is very afraid that if Esau is coming with 400 men, this is probably not a good thing. Um, and maybe his rage has not subsided and 400 is a big number and he's not got soldiers with him, presumably. So um, he's just got his family. So he's freaking out. So that's where we're going to pick up our story. Um, we missed a lot. In, I mean, we, we did the beginning of last week's Parsha, but like that Parsha is like chock full of like everything that happens um, for Yaakov until the return home. All right. So we will start the return, but I want to, and I'm, we're going to jump. So I'm going to start us because, because I'm, we're going to look at a commentary on this verse later, but then we're going to jump. All right, so this Parsha is called Vayishlach because the first word of the Parsha is Vayishlach, right? That's generally how it goes. The Parsha is called after the first word of the Parsha. Vayishlach, he sent. What did he send? He sent Malachim. So Vayishlach Yaakov Malachim Lefanav Esav Achiv. So Yaakov sent Malachim, messengers, before him to Esav, his brother, right? Um towards the land of Seir, the country of Edom, and instructed them as follows. Thus shall you say to my Lord Esav, thus says your servant Jacob. So these malachim, these messengers, when they, they're being sent towards Esav, when they encounter Esav, they're supposed to bow down and say to Esav, thus says our Lord Jacob. 
your servant. I stayed with Lavan and remained until now. I have acquired cattle, asses, sheep, and male and female slaves, and I send this message to my Lord in the hope of gaining your favor. So this is what the messengers from Yaakov were supposed to say to Esav when they meet up with him. And um, and they come back to report that he's coming with 400 men, and Yaakov is very, very frightened. Um, and he divides his camp into two, figuring if Esav attacks one camp, the other camp can get away. So imagine you're dividing your children and your their mothers into two camps, figuring, okay, if one of them gets attacked, the other will get away. Right? So not a great, not a great situation, right, to be in, obviously. Um, so we're going to skip ahead. Um, and so he's, he sets them, he, he, he's at the river Yavok. So you cannot, I don't think, you cannot separate Yavok from Yaakov. You, in Hebrew, you cannot hear Yavok and not think Yaakov. So, um, so he's at the Yavok River. He puts his family, he gets everybody settled into two camps, and then he goes back to the other side of the river, the Yavok, and he takes some time to himself. Okay, so he takes them across the stream. He sent across all his possessions. Vaivater Yaakov Livado. And he was left alone. So here, where is he? Yaakov at the Yavok. And what happens when he's alone? Vayavek ish imo. You cannot, in Hebrew, you cannot miss those cues. Yavok, Yaakov, Vayavek. Right? It's all alliterative. So Vayavek. What's Vayavek? So um, to engage, to wrestle, to... to um, and join with someone who is doing this with him, ish, an ish, a guy, ad alot hashachar, until the rising of the dawn. Vayar, kilo yochol lo, and he sees, and again, we're getting this language, remember, whenever we have these encounters that are not so clear what's happening, the language gets tangled. Right, that is a that is a literary technique to let us know this is not a normal occurrence. What's happening right here? So, so we get vayavater Yaakov levado. So the Yaakov was left alone. Vayavek ish imo, and a guy engages with him, struggles with him. Vayar, and he saw who? We don't know. It doesn't say who. Vayar, and he saw kilo yacholo that he wasn't able. Okay, and he hurt him. He injured him in his uh, uh, hip joint, his thigh joint. And he wrenches the hip in the socket. Now we get told who's getting wrenched, Yaakov. So then you have to go back to the beginning of the sentence to see who is he. He saw that he couldn't prevail. So that must mean. Jacob saw that he couldn't prevail against this Ish. And the Ish, so the Ish wrenches Yaakov's hip. Okay? In his wrestling with him. Vayomer, and he said, who said? We don't know. <laughs> right? Vayomer, Shalcheni, let me go, send me. Right, the Vayishlach. This is our parsha. Vayishlach. He says, "Send me," meaning, "Let me go." Ki Allah Shachar, for the dawn is breaking. Vayomer, and he said, "Who said? We don't know." Lo eshlachacha. I'm not going to send you. Ki im berchatani, unless you bless me. Vayomer elav, and he said to him, "Who?" We don't know. And he said to him, Mashmecha, what is your name? Vayomer. And he said, Yaakov. So once we get, he said, Yaakov, that's who's answering. That means 
the person asking the question was not Yaakov. It was the other guy. <laughs> so you, so with, with this whole exchange, you have to keep going back to the beginning once you know who's talking. So he, so it's Yaakov that answers the question, which means it was the Ish that asked the question. What was the question again? What's your name? What was the request before that? It turns out it was Yaakov saying, bless me. Okay. So, so that means it was the Ish, the guy who said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. Okay. So now we know the Ish says, let me go, meaning they're struggling and it's a, <coughs> it's a draw. The Ish says, let me go for the dawn is breaking. We only know this from having gotten to the end of the sentence. So, but he says, let me go for the dawn is breaking. What does dawn breaking have to do with let me go? Okay. We'll talk about that. And, and Yaakov says, no, not unless and until you bless me. Okay. And so now the guy says, well, what's your name? Why does he ask his name? Okay. And he says, Yaakov, Vayomer. And he says, Lo Yaakov ye Amer od. Your name won't be called Yaakov anymore. Ki im Yisrael. But instead, Israel. Ki sarita im Elohim ve'im anashim vatuchal. Because you sarited with Elohim. What does that mean? Is it capital E Elohim? Or is it little e, plural Elohim, gods? So is this you, because you sarita, what does that mean? You sarited, what is that? Okay, so you, some people translate it as have striven with, have wrestled with Elohim. Is this the big E, God? Or is it little e, gods? Ve'im anashim, and with people, vatuchal, and have, usually it's, it's translated prevailed, but it really means to be able. Remember he says, he sees that he's not able, meaning to prevail, and here it says, and you were able, in your struggling with gods, or God, and people. Okay, this is, none of this makes a whole lot of sense, Right? Um, we, we read it like it makes sense, but when you really stay with the Hebrew, it's like, huh? What gods? What people? What is he talking about? Vayishal Yaakov, and Yaakov asks, Vayomer, and, and in asking, he says, Hagidana Shemecha, tell me your name. Vayomer, and he says, meaning the other the guy, why are you asking my name? And he blesses him. A very bizarre, very bizarre scene. Um, but let's finish it out because I don't like where the division is here. Uh, oh, it's just the division of who, uh, which Aliyah it is. And Yaakov called the name of the place. Pniel, literally, the face of El, of God. Ki ra'iti Elohim, because I saw Elohim, God, panim el panim, face to face. Vatinat sel nafshi, but my self, nefesh here in, in biblical Hebrew does not mean soul. It, that's rabbinic Hebrew. In, in biblical Hebrew, it means yourself including your soul, your body, everything, but was saved. Okay. By Yisrach lo Hashemesh, and the sun rose on him. This is just like the dream, whereas this happens in the middle of the night. How do we know? Because now the sun's coming up, right? I mean, you know, so it, it it's a, the, the dawn is starting to break, right, when this whole thing ends. And now we're in the full light of morning. So either he goes back to sleep or... He collapses. We don't know. Um, but this, now that we're in the full light of day, and uh, and he's uh, he's passing through 
this place, Penuel, and he is limping on his leg that he got injured at. And because of that, all Cain, and so, Lo yochlu v'nei Yisrael et gid hanaseis. And so the descendants of Yisrael, right, his name was just changed to Yisrael. So that's why the descendants of Yisrael do not eat the thigh muscle because Jacob's hip socket was wrenched at the thigh muscle. So meaning we don't eat this part of the cow or the whatever else you're it's not kosher. Um, probably, probably um, it's the sciatic nerve that was off limits because they thought it was part of the reproductive system. No brisket is allowed. It doesn't come from from here. There you go. So you can't have you can't eat this. Chickens and turkeys. I don't know. We can eat thighs. We can eat chicken thighs. Um, So, okay. So probably it's the sciatic nerve. Probably they thought it was part of the reproductive system. So that, we don't eat that. Okay, people. What do we think? Nice dream. Okay. So Dana is going to claim that it's a dream. That this... That this is an evening, like he's having some kind of, it doesn't say he dreams, right? It did last week. It said very clearly he dreams. So are you going to claim it just doesn't tell us that? Or are you going to claim <coughs> like that, that it is a dream or that it's maybe not totally reality? Like he's not totally well, awake. Is it on? Hmm? Well, I f- feel like he was doing a lot of thinking while he was sleeping. So, you know, dreams are um, can be real. I mean, you wake up and you got good ideas. Okay, so you're you're, but you're staying with this is in his mind. This isn't really happening. This is in his mind. Why? Why did it have to end before dawn? But you don't necessarily wake up at dawn. I don't. <laughs> I'll tell you that right now. I do not wake up at dawn. They did. So um, now, yeah, they did. But then why does he have to say, let me go, for the morning is coming? Like, if you're just going to wake up, why, why do you have to say, let me go, the morning's coming? Certainly, I, I think, uh, indicates that this is something out of ordinary time and ordinary thought. And this really... Uh, 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 you know, to me at least, seems to represent some kind of symbolic struggle. So clearly the language is such that, and the way it's written is such that, I mean, they know how to write clearly. So it's, it's, it's clearly on purpose, and no redactor came and changed it, right? It, it stays written like this. So it's clearly purposeful. So... So you're suggesting that the language being the way it is lets us know that this is not an ordinary struggle. Whether it's actually happening or in his mind, it's not ordinary. It's, it's still secondary process in a sense, but it, it's not fully comprehensible. Why, 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 why is it de- by definition a secondary process? That, it, that There's a certain internal logic to it. You can follow a sequence in it. Oh, and it makes some sense. It's not a series of independent symbols that uh, that are strung together, but don't have necessarily a logical sequencing. Okay. Um, any other suggestions, David? Yeah. In the mic. It's Jacob's hip socket that's taken out. Who's he lost basically? Why is he making demands? It should. It's almost like he. I mean, it, that's not that logical, is it? Uh, he. Especially if he limps away, and it's it's. But remember, the ish is saying, "Let me go," because the morning's breaking. You have to let me go. And Jacob says, "No." So it's like a vampire or something. So this is where a lot of folks go. Is do you remember Three Billy Goats Gruff? Hannah, did you not get read that story? Lee, Hannah. So so he he hasn't bested. Three Billy Goats Gruff. What is that about? Oh my gosh, people, 
It's about the trolls that guard the crossing of the what? The river. Rivers have demons that guard them. And you have to pay the demon to cross. Yaakov has crossed over the Yavuk. It is possibly a story about the the demon that guards the Yavok River that Yaakov has to engage with to earn passage. If it is a demon, you have to let me go because I can't be out in the sun. By definition, night demons cannot be in the daylight. So let me go. The dawn is fixing to come. Let me go. It's danger for me to be here when the sun comes up. And Yaakov knows he's got an advantage because the thing can't get away from him. So he says, Mm-mm-mm. not until you bless me. So obviously resting a blessing from some kind of otherworldly creature like this is a good thing, right? So he rests the blessing or he's going to, that's what he demands in order to let this thing go. And the, and the thing says to him, what's your name? Why does this thing ask, what's your name? Because if you're going to bless somebody, you need to know their name. You, you have to invoke their name if you want to actually make something efficacious. You have to know the name. Right. And so Yaakov says, my name's Yaakov. <laughs> Here's how you spell it. Right? And the demon says, no, not anymore. Your name will now be Yisrael because you have sard, whatever that means, um, wrestled, battled, struggled with gods or God and humans and have proven yourself capable. Jacob is all about the blessing game. Absolutely. Now, the Yish or the, Melech, the angel is giving Jacob. Wait, say a, it again. The what? The Ish is giving Jacob a new name. Yes. Who gave a new name to Abraham and Sarah? Or Sarai? Who, was that God or an yes, angel? Yes, God. That's pretty impressive that the, you know, Ish is the one that named the people Israel. Well, he, well, he doesn't name the people Israel. He names Yaakov Israel. The people chose to call themselves B'nai Yisrael instead of B'nai Avraham. That, that's always been fascinating to me. Why aren't we calling ourselves B'nai Avraham, B'nai Yitzchak? We call ourselves B'nai this guy. Like of all the patriarchs, of the three patriarchs, we pick this guy to call ourselves after. What? Well, this idea of a demon and making a deal doesn't make sense to me. I think it's really more a, a battle between the physical world and the spiritual world, between the life that he lived full of lies and deceit and the kind of person we would want to be the founder of who we are. And so this battle goes on. Jacob can't beat the Ish. And the Ish can't beat Jacob. Daylight comes and a deal has to be made. That's it. So it's an internal struggle, an internal external struggle, a struggle with God, a struggle with an angel. It's all possible. It all can fit within the narrative. And here. But, but the uh, part, but the part that's confusing is if you go on to the next. But the part that's confusing to me is when you go on to the next sentence, like he's again called Yaakov. They don't call him. He doesn't get rid of one name. He's called both. Right. For the rest of the time, he's not. It, it doesn't get rid of. He's not not Yaakov anymore. He gets this name added, and he's called both. Right. So that's. I think that's the uh, the paradox. You know the. The multiplicity, the toggling okay. back and forth. It seems to me this story is very different from anyone we've read so far in that it's, um, it's, uh, like a fairy tale in this. We talk about the Torah as the psychic history of our people, but this is a real fairy tale in our, in our myths. Yeah. I, I definitely see remnants of three Billy Goats Gruff. I mean, all those fairy tales that are about 
the spirit that lives at the at the river, hundred percent. There's no denying this is a fairy tale. This is derived from those stories, no doubt, no question. I, you just can't. I don't care what Mark says. You, there's no way. This is not that. There's no way. So the question is, given that you've got lots of different fairy tale motifs to choose from, what, what does this choice mean? Right. That that is, you know, where you wound, wound up. Right. Is you know, what does it mean that our people chose this story to make it about a patriarch and why this course of events, right? There's lots of ways you could tell the story, why this course of events. Um, but so I think for sure it's a motif for sure, you know, just like we have the hero stories and we have the betrothals at the well, these are all common motifs. You have to have a flood story. You have to, right? So this is a very common motif. I'm sure there, there's evidence for it all over the ancient world. Um, our question becomes, so what does it mean as part of the mythic history of the Jewish people? Um, and it, it seems to be, but, but, and he names the place Peniel. We can't forget that. He names the place Peniel because he sees God face to face and doesn't die, essentially, right? His, his self was saved even as he confronts the divine face to face. So Yaakov's understanding is that he has somehow encountered divinity. So it starts out as an ish, a river demon or a whatever, whatever, whatever. Through that struggle, Yaakov comes to understand that he has encountered the divine somehow. I've always wondered why we call ourselves Jew-ish. Maybe this is where it started. It's never Christian-ish or Buddhist or any other religion, Jew-ish. Oh, my God. Okay. The things they cannot prepare you for in rabbinical school. Okay. Oh, that was so bad, Jew-ish. Okay. So did you all catch that at home? That was, it's really bad. Um, what happens in this room? Yes. Um, I think it's the muffins, maybe. Like, Lisa. Yeah, like, what's in those muffins? Okay. Yes, please. Take the mic. So, I mean... I'm kind of sitting here making a face because talking about um, contemplation of encountering the divine as this weird troll-like um, thing makes it sounds kind of pagan to me. And we're talking about the word for God and did, did Jacob struggle with God, one God, or did he struggle with a multitude of gods? It just doesn't sound that Jewish to me. And so what, where I go is this must have been more of an internal struggle and this must have been more about both contemplating Jacob's struggle with God historically and also even in the face of this weird ish, you know, garter of Hades type of person, this is all dreamlike and internal. That's, it just doesn't, mm -hmm. it just sounds very pagan well, to have but, the demon. But what's God. funny is your reaction to that. Yeah, it's very strong. Right? Yeah. That's what's interesting, right? Because yes. of course it's pagan. Right. Israelites were pagans. Uh -huh. Right. Till they became Israelite. Okay. So all of their stories before Yahweh are all pagan. Right. So if they're going to carry their stuff into their new Yahwism, they're by definition bringing pagan stories that they reconstruct. So, so they had to do what you had to do. They had to reconstruct those pagan stories to be now acceptable in this Yahwist tradition. So they did what you did. They're like, okay, we love this story. We can't not have this story because it's our story. It's a, it's our patriarch. Like this is, how can we not have the story about him at the Yafok? Like that, we got to have that. But we also have to now Yawify it, right? So now it becomes Peniel. Now it becomes I have seen the face of God, right? It has to because it can't stay in the tradition if it's going to remain pagan. I love it when we come across the pagan stuff in our tradition. I, it's my favorite stuff. Um, I love that stuff. But, um, but, but, so I guess what I'm saying is like we, the reaction to the pagan stuff is what's interesting to me. Like it's kind of like, wait, what, what, what is that doing here? It's like, uh, because that's who we were. We were Canaanites who became Israelite. 
And so, so, so we, we have deep roots in the Canaanite pagan mythology that then we have to reconstruct and make it work in a Yaoist tradition. Who's saying something? I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not quite sure that I, I really have thought through what I wanted to say at all. But, um, but I think that, that uh, what we're presented with is clearly the secondary revision of, uh, of a story. And yes. that there are uh, innumerable ways of, uh, of interpreting it. Um, but it, uh, um, <clears throat> because we don't have uh, any working uh, with dream, we want the interpretations. We don't have that. We have only the uh, the uh, representations of some unconscious process that's going on. And clearly, there's a struggle. In some way, it's a representation. <clears throat> Whether one thinks that there's some external real event that was a struggle, or some internal process, uh, some internal uh, struggle of Yaakov's, uh, clearly it's a struggle between uh, internal objects. And uh, there's an outcome of this uh, struggle of internal objects that is a kind of resolution of the conflict. And the conflict has to do with the change from uh, a, a pagan uh, way of, uh, or it's interpreted as having to do with change from a pagan uh, way of looking at things, something that has to do with the resolution in favor of being able to see God. Mm-hmm. For sure. Sure, for sure, this has been reworked, for sure. I, you know, to 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 have that outcome, for sure. I guess I don't like the word demon in there because I don't think I want to be blessed by a demon. So I have to think that Yaakov. Why? Why? Why are you reacting to the word demon, George? To me, it means evil. It doesn't have to mean evil. Well, I'm saying it's to me. It does. Okay. And that, okay, but what if it doesn't? What if it's a night creature whose job it is well, to guard the river? Well, it, let's say it's not evil. It's just this is the the oh. the being's job is to guard the river. We we call it demons, but it doesn't have to mean well, evil. Well, okay. The word demon to me means okay. Evil, so but, some being. Yeah, but I think that. Uh, Yaakov has to believe that it was um, some nature of God who was there, and he names it that. Mm -hmm. So it just, I guess it's really an objection to the word demon, my own definition of it. Okay, so I take it back. So a river being whose job it is to protect the river... And who, challenges Yaakov, who want, who's going to try to cross. His yeah, family's over who, there. Who represents uh, God in some way. C clearly, that is where the story yeah. ends up, that Yaakov understands it somehow as an encounter with divinity. Yes, yes, that's the important thing. And so I. Okay, so for you, that's the important part. Yes. Okay. I just was thinking about this idea of the Canaanites being paganistic, but, and then, uh, Yaakov evolving from that kind of thinking. But for me, it's childlike. So the paganism is childlike. Kids, when they first learn, really like that story of the three billy goats. You know, they learn from it. And then as they grow, I don't know if they reconstruct it. Don't they, like, develop and mature and become adult? And maybe that's what ya hap is happening to Yaakov. He's becoming... He's developing into a, I mean, like all our society is developing. But okay, so I, I, where I'm going to push back is to suggest that paganism is childlike and Yahwism is adult. That's where I'm going to push back. Like, I, I don't believe it's an evolution that Yahwism is better than paganism. That paganism is childlike and then we grow up and become Yahwists because we mature. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. There are other pagan traditions that are still happening in the world. It doesn't mean they're less than patriarchal monotheism. They have their own way of of interpreting, you know, the divine in the world. So, so I resist classifying the pagan as childhood, and then we grow up and become good patriarchal monotheists. Yeah, I guess I was reacting to. I don't want to throw out the stories, and I think they have a purpose. 
but as you get older and wiser, you see them in a different light. So um, I would say as as Israelites evolved into Yahwists, they had to reconstruct the stories that they had when they were not Yahwists. Does that, does that make sense? And just maybe this, alter, this offers us another interpretation or a way to think about God, that if we, it's not so much that we've evolved into this vision of God as the one true thing with no, um, sort of no ambiguity or no multifaceted quote-unquote personality, that this power can be both very positive and, and also awe-inducing and fear, you know, And I think creating. that is to your point. That this devil, this, that, this not That devil, there is this, the demonic Within God. the divine. That if we go with Rami Shapiro's definition of God as reality, capital R, God as the ocean, we can have a really good time in the ocean and you can drown. That if God is reality, capital R, it contains all of what we experience as good, bad, and indifferent. Which brings me to like the Buddhism and the accepting of what is of groundlessness and not that this is a father-like God And I think that's why they took a story about a demon and make it Jacob's encounter with El. Because I think there is a way that this story is about the reality of confronting the divine, which is sometimes terrifying, and it sometimes means people die, and tragically, and too young, and horrible things happen. That, I believe, is part of the value of this story, is that it refuses to, ha- to posit only the good about the divine. That he's hurt, he's injured, he walks away from the confrontation with God, limping. I think that's important in this story. And because otherwise, you're only hanging out with God when things go well. Well, really? Okay. Really? I think this story is saying it's not that simple. It's not that clear. I was just going to point out also that daemon, it's the Greek, which is the daemon. We we think of demon as evil, but daemons are actually uh, supernatural creatures who are neither evil or good they're just powerful that's and, exactly right and uh, and that that's where the so it's probably just the contemporary association you have with the word demon yeah. but, yes. but and also and also they would be um, I mean this is this is uh, the idea of demons it g- runs deep and and uh, rabbis and everybody else would be you know they would be influenced by the Greek Greek uh, notion of daemon all right I, I, I am putting in the chat sure. The um the sheet that I'm now going to show you. All right. So if you want it, um, Mark's idea was that I should put it in the chat. So if you all want at home to print it out and look at it while we're doing this, you can. If you want to print it out later, you need to click on it now so that you have it open in your browser. Okay. So let's look at some interpretations of this. What I what I find very interesting is that a lot of people in this room, I don't know about y'all at home because you're not talking, um, which I don't understand. You're still Jews, even if you're on Zoom. Um, so a lot of people in this room seem very attached to needing this to be um, an internal process. I find that fascinating. Like this is not just an event that happens. This is, everyone is very attached to Jacob is wrestling with something within himself. I find that very interesting. Like the contemporary readers need this to be a metaphor of an internal struggle. I just find that fascinating. I like it as a river demon myself, but whatever. Okay, but let's look at some contemporary interpretations. So this is one um, from the beginning of the Parsha. Jacob sent messengers ahead to his brother and instructed them as follows, Thus shall you say to my lord Asaph, Thus says your servant Jacob, I stayed with Lavan and remained until now. I've acquired all this stuff, and I'm sending this message to my lord in the hope of gaining your favor. Rashi, our famous, you know, most famous commentator, Rashi, Rashi says, um, Garti, meaning I lived with Lavan. It says Garti. I sojourned with Lavan. So Rashi's picking up on this word. Why doesn't it say, why does it use the word Garti? I sojourned. He was there 20 years. Like, why does it just say lived? Or, you know, so, so Rashi picks up on it. 
Um, I have become neither a prince nor other person of importance, but merely a gear. So it's coded language. Rashi's saying Yaakov's sending a coded message to Esav saying, I didn't become a big shot. I just was a gear. I was a sojourner. I was a visitor with Lavan, an outsider for 20 years. It is not worth your while to hate me on account of the blessing of your father who blessed me, meaning the blessing I stole from you. There's no reason for you to be mad. It didn't happen. It didn't materialize. I was a gear for 20 years. I didn't become a big shot. It didn't work. You don't need to be mad. The blessing I stole from you didn't work. Be master over thy brethren, for it has not been fulfilled in me. All right? So very clever. Rashi's, Rashi's saying Yaakov hasn't stopped any of his business, you know, in terms of, you know, being the deal doer. He, he's sending a message to Esau saying, there's no reason to come after me to kill me. I was a gear for 20 years. The blessing didn't work. The one I stole from you was not efficacious. So I didn't take any, I didn't take anything from you. So don't, don't kill me. Okay. But Rabbi Aaron Lieb Smoker, Smokler goes to the Sfat Emet on the Rashi. Right? So I brought you the Rashi because the Sfat Emet goes to Rashi and is going to talk about Rashi's commentary. So what is, what does the Sfat Emet do with this? The Sfat Emet says Rabbi Smokler sees something else in Rashi's words. Jacob's representation of himself as a gear reflects an essential insight into the nature of at-homeness. As Jacob leaves one temporary home with Lavan and journeys back toward his ancestral home, he contemplates the spiritual power of rootlessness or strangerness. To be a gear is to be on the outside looking in, to inhabit the margins of society, to not be at home in the world. A gear is a newcomer, a passer through, an unintegrated group member. It is one who is not quite at ease, not settled in their body or in their space. The Sfatimet picks up on this. When Jacob wants to communicate to his brother who he has become, he chooses one core feature of his being. He is a gear. We humans are complex beings comprised of body and soul, material concerns and transcendent aspirations, physical needs and spiritual hungers. We live in this earthly world, but we are enlivened by higher worlds of supernal consciousness. This is the language of Sfatimit. We live between states with our feet on the ground, going back to last week, our feet on the ground, our heads in the heavens, rendering us full residents of neither. The Sfatimet suggests that we ought to keep this tension alive. We ought to stay mindful of ourselves as foreigners, gayrim, neither here nor there. Um, I love that, right? Um, and so, so God says in Leviticus, You can't sell the land Right? Because the land is mine. You are but strangers, gayrim, imadi, with me. So what is the Sfada? So now the Sfadimet's going back to this idea of gare, of being a stranger. But what does he do? It's just so fantastic. In contrast to the simple reading of the word imadi, with me, in Leviticus, this, this sentence I just read from Leviticus, which takes our lot to be strangers relative to God, the Degel Machana Ephraim, another commentator, renders the phrase to mean together with God. We, we are strangers, Gerim, and residents together with God, just like God. What? You're saying what? God is the ultimate Ger, the ultimate stranger in this world. God is therefore, I just, I get chill bumps. God is therefore a stranger who sits on the sidelines of the world, unable to fully enter, rootless, unanchored to a place, unbound to the physical world. And so says the Degel, the divine is alienated from the very beings and things it created, alone, vulnerable, and misunderstood. In an act of subversive irony, God's infinite greatness becomes the source of God's infinite loneliness. Oh, 
We too are Gerim, just like God. And just like God, we can be profoundly lonely. I think this is one of the most beautiful commentators, I mean commentaries I've read in a really, really long time. Um, talking about a creator who was essentially other and who asks uh, of us to join there with God, right? Um, through our own experiences of otherness and alienation. This is Aaron Lieb Smokler who brings the Sfatimet. The Sfatimet was commenting on Rashi, but this is how our tradition works, right? The Sfatimet goes back to Rashi to say, Rashi says that Yaakov's saying, I'm a ger, so don't kill me. I didn't become a big shot. I've, I've been a ger. And so the Sfatimet goes, but it's much deeper than that. He is a ger. And God says, you are gerim with me. Usually that means you're gerim to me. But the Sfatimet says, no, but it doesn't say to me. It says with me. And so the Sfatimet, I mean, the Degel Machane Ephraim goes further to say, because God is the ultimate ger, the ultimate stranger, also not at home. Just as we are gerim, like, like Yaakov, we are feet on the ground, head, you were part divine, part creature. Um, and that we should keep that, the Sfatimet wants us to keep that tension alive and pay attention to it and use it. Um, and, and that God also is not able to be fully in, in this world because God is so other, the ultimate alien. Yes. I was just going to point out to reinforce that the, you know, part of the issue of being a stranger or an immigrant, you could say, is that half of your family is in one place and the other half is here. And that situation is kind of, he split his family in two. So there, he's sort of reenacting that gareness just by having yeah. split up his Yeah, his, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. All right. So um, I love this by Rachel Goldenberg also. No, I was just going to say uh, our relationship with God is when we let God in. So we're strangers to God. and We have an awareness of presence. I think that goes back to the dream or whatever it was and the struggle. <laughs> okay. This is oh so very familiar, says Rabbi Rachel Goldenberg. Maybe not the running away from a murderous sibling thing, but definitely the anticipating an encounter with a difficult person with whom I have baggage thing. I can imagine the inner monologue taking place in Jacob's mind as he contemplates re-entering a relationship that he hasn't managed to skillfully navigate in the past. Will I be able to act differently this time? Will Aesop act differently? How can I plan and script and strategize beforehand so that I'll be prepared? Maybe this time I can be in better control. I see in Jacob's behavior so many of the ways I know I try to avoid facing what is scary or unknowable. If I can run around accomplishing things, posting articles on Facebook, attending meetings, hitting the streets for just one more protest, then I won't have to feel my worry about the future. I build up defenses of busyness, so I simply won't have enough time or space to be alone with what's really happening. It's all about creating the illusion of control. If I can overcome and succeed at all of these small things, I won't have to feel the big presence of the unknown, capital P, capital U, that is truly bearing down on me that I can't overcome. At a certain point, I hit a wall. The fear or anxiety or restlessness becomes overwhelming, and there is need for prayer, for breath, for a pause. It can happen in the most mundane moments. And then she talks about feeling overwhelmed in the kitchen, um, and she says, thankfully, I saw what was happening, took down the cereal box, turned off the phone and just stood there in the kitchen, closed my eyes, brought attention to my breath, to the sounds outside the window and in the house. And then I felt it, the fear, the sadness, the worry, the not knowing of this moment, a moment of acknowledgement was all I needed. She said, this is new for Jacob. This, this scene we just had is a stage in Yaakov's development. He's changing. He's not going to control the situation. Like he, uh, up until this event, he's still family here, family there, <clears throat> sending messengers, sending stuff. Here's what you say to him, controlling everything, trying to control everything about this, this encounter he cannot control. And at this scene is about 
he's doing something differently, right? His opponent declares vatuchal, which is usually translated as you prevailed. However, a more literal reading would render this as you were able. Jacob here is able to be present with the truth, that he is not in control, that he is vulnerable, that he can't predict how Esau will receive him. But Jacob doesn't emerge unscathed, right, from facing that truth, from that reality. His, this wrestling hurts, and he's left with a limp. But he does not leave the experience having open to an but he does leave the experience having open to a new way of being. He has a new name. He has received a blessing and he has come face to face, right? With the uh, divine. And then of course we know how it ends that he runs to meet Asav. They embrace and they come together. Um, um, seeing his brother's face, we were told in Genesis 33, um, to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Like that this prepare, seeing the face of God here, Facing the truth, facing the fact that he has no control, facing it, doing it differently is how he's able then to see the divine in his brother who was his enemy um, and vice versa. So a very powerful interpretation. Okay, I know I have to let you go. And I love that about our tradition and um, and that we call ourselves after this incident. Like I love that our name for ourselves is B'nai Yisrael. We don't even call ourselves B'nai Yaakov. We call ourselves B'nai Yisrael. We call ourselves descendants of the one who struggled. That's who we are. Like, that is how we understand ourselves. I think it's a little crazy, like, that that's what we name ourselves. But that's what we name ourselves. And, like, and this is the incident. This is the scene that gives him that name. And, like, I, it is not an accident, right, that, that this is the interpretation because so which comes first, the name Israel or the definition, the meaning, right? How the elephant got its trunk, right? Likely the name was there first. This becomes a story about why we're called Yisrael, why he's called Yisrael. But I love it because it's like we are the people of Israel. We are the ones who come up with this crazy story to explain why we call ourselves this. We could have come up with a very different story, couldn't we? To explain our name. There was the same, because uh, I just finished reading a long um, history of the state of Israel. So they had to come up with a name for Israel too. And it wasn't foreordained that it was going to be Israel. There were a lot of other names, but they sort of... For the country. This, for the country, I'm sorry. Uh, so it's sort of interesting that that it just, uh, they kind of did it twice. You know, it just, once, once, once someone suggested, uh, I can't remember who it was, suggested the name Israel. It just, it fit and there was no more... Real, yeah. But but in ancient times it was called Eretz Israel. Yeah, it's yeah. not like they just picked one. Like it, right, it was right. known as Eretz Israel, the land well, of Israel. I know, but that they would go back and do it again. It's like yeah, they but got a uh, yeah, that we reaffirmed that yes. this is who we are. Like when we picked the name Israel for the country in modern times, we it was a reaffirmation that yep, this this whole business that's yeah, us. That's us. Yeah. Right. Like that. That's still how we under, understand ourselves, which is a little crazy. Sar can mean prince. Right, the prince of God, Israel, the prince of God, makes a lot more sense. That's not what we made up as a story of why we're called Israel. This is what we came up with about why we're called Israel, which you just have to love about a people that names itself we who wrestle with divinity. Like that's pretty chutzpahdik, like and a little crazy. Like, but like, I love that. I know, like, I love that. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.